strange ignorance in the heartland. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the conversation. I'm David Schuster, good to have you with us. Uh, there are a lot of great debates across the United States, especially in the Midwest about school funding. Well, one of these debates took a very, very, very weird turn recently when a state senator in Nebraska by the name of Bruce Bosselman started complaining about furries. He described furries as kids who like to dress up as dogs or cats and ask schools for litter boxes. And he said, how can schools let this happen? The fact of the matter is, it doesn't happen. He was either taken in by some sort of hoax, or he believes something that maybe he read online, who knows. But this is speaking volumes, some of us think about the state of local politics, particularly in, in places like Nebraska. And here to talk about it is Ross Benish. He is an author, a journalist, author of the book, Rural Rebellion. He also happens to be from the same Nebraska hometown as the state senator, Bruce Bosselman. Uh, Ross, good for you to join us. Um, Bruce Bosselman, what was his reputation before this crazy event? Well, before this crazy event, he didn't really do a whole lot in the legislature other than follow the dictates of our governor, Pete Ricketts, who helped get him elected into office. His biography will probably double in size just through this incident, just by adding that sentence about furries. Any idea how he got onto the furries issue? I mean, it's not really an issue. There have been several hoaxes, there's some pranks, some kids have sort of gotten into trying to convince people that this is real. But how did he get suckered by all of this? I don't know exactly how he got suckered to believing it, but he said that he was following this Facebook group where there was a discussion about this. And it was this Nebraska you know, politics Facebook group essentially where someone Posted about it and said, "Oh, we heard this rumor about uh, litter boxes." And instead of calling schools or walking into them to verify, he just went on the legislature and admonished everyone in the education system for letting this atrocity happen. And as part of his alleged atrocity, he described how he had heard that there was a student who was not given a litter box, who wanted to be a furry, who instead decided to defecate right there on the floor. And State Senator Bosselman said, really, really? Well, if he didn't know it was real and he's just going based on some Facebook, but what does it say about him and his sort of responsibility in terms of public discourse? Well, what it says is that we have a lot of people in elected office who don't deserve to be there. Bruce Bosselman was elected in 2016 because a lot of dark money helped him and so did our vindictive governor. The guy who used to represent this district, his name was Jerry Johnson. He had previously been a mayor of a small city, he was you know, a civil servant. And he voted against the governor on the death penalty. And following that, a slew of ads came in against him and he was ran out of office. And then the guy that replaced him was Bruce Bostelman, who in addition to the furries thing, has also been supportive of giving the governor more control over our public power system which is unfortunate because Nebraska is the only state in the United States that has entirely public power. There does seem to be something about this particular part of Nebraska, maybe something in the water that you can enlighten us on because also this, this is a, an area that is represented in Congress by uh, Jeff Fortenberry. He was recently convicted of lying about taking foreign campaign money. Uh, and again, he's the congressman who represents this particular area. Ginny Thomas, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, who's been associated with January 6th and asking the former White House Chief of Staff uh, uh, to try to do what he can to try to help throw the election. She's from this part of Nebraska. What is it about this particular area of the state? Yeah, it hasn't been a good few weeks for our elected officials back home. 
I gotta say the people back in Nebraska are mostly good people. I respect them, they're kind hearted. But we have a lot of people in office who just follow the demands of the national GOP. And right now there's a lot of lunacy in that party as demonstrated by the conviction of Fortenberry, the furry speech by Bostelman and the anti-democratic moves that Jenny Thomas has made. We've seen and we've done some other interviews with folks who talk about the state legislatures, state politics and that to so many states, I think we did one a few months ago about Ohio, for example, where the state legislatures, the state legislators on the Republican side, they model themselves increasingly after the, the lunatics in, in the Congress, whether it's Lauren Boebert or Marjorie Taylor Greene or Madison Cawthorn. And that particularly because of redistricting, there, there's increasing number of Republicans who don't have any sort of challenge really that if they win the primary, uh, there's no Democratic challenge, it's a Republican district. So they're free to essentially be as crazy to the right as they want. Has that been something that has played out in Nebraska and other states in the Midwest as far as you've seen? Yeah, there's definitely that's played out and it happens a lot when you don't have any challengers. Like you said, in Nebraska, the Republican primary is the election for most elections. And you've just seen competitions over who can go further to the right. It's happening right now in our governor's race. That's not, that's not due to redistricting because that's a statewide race. But um, we, we see that all the time. If the Democrats were more competitive out there, I think there would be more pressure on the Republicans to be sane. But outside of Omaha area, it's tough for Democrats to compete in the state. And one of the things that's been a very tough for states like Nebraska is in terms of the media. Used to be a state like Nebraska would have literally maybe hundreds of hometown local newspapers. And over the last 10 to 15 years, these newspapers have largely been going out of business. You know, 95% of local newspapers across the United States and some of these small towns have disappeared. And as a result, people can, I suppose, get information from the internet or they turn to Fox News, MSNBC, some of the mainstream partisan media for their source of information where it used to be sort of filtered through local journalists who knew the community who knew sort of right from wrong. Um, does that have much of an impact as far as you see it? It has an impact on driving some people to the fringes, it has an impact on making people more vocal in the things that they already believe. I have Bruce Bostelman, if he followed the local paper instead of fringe Facebook groups, he probably wouldn't have come across the furry conspiracy. Is there such a thing as a furry conspiracy? I mean, look, there are real furry conventions, right? I mean, I, there's there's nothing wrong with with, with if furries. You know, adults are allowed to do their own thing. I'm not here to judge furries, but don't go on the floor of the legislature and pick at public schools and say they're allowing kids to dress up like cats and poop in corners when that's certainly not allowed. And this isn't the first time he's come after public education either. I've seen transcripts of speeches where he's come after the university for leaving lights on the football's stadiums field for, they do it for security purposes. But he was saying as taxpayers, why do we waste money on this you know, university that tends to take up all of our dollars, but they, they use it for good things. And attacking education has kind of been in the GOP playbook lately. And has his argument been that, well, you know, if we sent money to private schools or home schools that you know, this wouldn't happen because Obviously, kids in private schools can be just as mischievous as kids in public schools. I haven't seen him personally make that argument or push for it. But our governor has been a big advocate of the school choice movement and vouchers and all these things that haven't been 
popular in Nebraska. And uh, there have been um, petitions circulating to try to get our democratically elected board of education eliminated and give control over that to the governor. Yeah, that seems to be playing out in a lot of places. And these battles, particularly local school boards, have been very intense. Um, I'm originally from Indiana, so I've got a certain sort of, uh, my heart is with people from the Midwest. I think like there's a certain earnestness and sort of uh, calm and conscientious sort of approach of Midwesterners, whether it's Indiana, Illinois, Nebraska, Iowa, etc. But I also know that uh, the students as sort of calm as they may be, they will latch on if they know that they can fool <laughs> local politicians with some sort of prank, they they will do it. Um, does this mean because of Bosselman that we're gonna see furry student <laughs> activists literally all over the country now? I, I don't think it'll go that far, but we're living in crazy times, so it could happen, I suppose. Yeah, and you know, I I wonder if you know the kids will say, all right, you know, we're gonna we're gonna take Mr. Bosselman seriously, and we really are gonna show up at some high school or junior high school in Nebraska and show up dressed as a kitty cat or a dog and demand That'd be a pretty litter box. Rock thing to do. Yeah, well, I gotta ask you, um, uh, as far as politics in general about Nebraska, the state that continues to be, I assume, a, a very strong red state. Very strong red state, and it just gets even redder. And uh, and so, is there much of a progressive movement, um, progressive hopes, uh, democratic hopes in a state like Nebraska? Well, there's definitely people who are trying, but they haven't had much success. I, I believe the uh, highest elected official in the Democratic Party in our state is a public service commissioner. Oh wow, public service commissioner. Well, I gotta say that my uh, my son, who's messing around on the back, he clearly is interested in Nebraska politics because he can't <laughs> seem to resist uh, this interview. Uh, for people, I got dogs in the Nebraska. back. You know, we all got things going on. Yeah, you know, it's, this is the family life. For uh, for people who are not from Nebraska, what should they know in general about about the state, about its politics, about its personality? I think you should know in general that the people are much better than the elected officials, and that hopefully our football program won't be terrible for much longer. <laughs> Scott Frost, the, uh, the the former quarterback in Nebraska, the coach there. We had such high hopes. Yeah, I mean, look, generally you hire your former quarterback and things are gonna go fine. And he's got lots of local state connections and everything's gonna and work out. he was out, the national but, uh, coach of the year the year before we hired him, but whatever. And, and just like a lot of other places in the heartland, people live and breathe uh, college football because there's not a professional team in a place like Nebraska. Oh, It's a huge part of the culture, everyone comes and congregates around it and it gives you something to connect with people over. Yeah, well, uh, we are connecting tonight about um, furries and <laughs> we appreciate uh, we appreciate Ross Benish for uh, for playing along with us and uh, giving us some insights on the strange happenings in the state of Nebraska during a school funding bill. Uh, Ross, again, he's an author, journalist, uh, his book, his uh, most recent book is Rural Rebellion. Uh, Ross, thanks so much for doing this, we appreciate it and uh, have a good night. Thanks for having me on, David. You got it, take care. Campaign 2022, welcome back to the conversation, I'm David Schuster. There are some fascinating congressional races around the United States, including one in New York, New York's third congressional district. This is a seat that had been held by Tom Suozzi for three terms, he's now running for governor. So there are 10, 10 Democrats running in the primary to try to get the Democratic essentially nomination for the general election in the fall. Um, and one of those 10 is a progressive by the name of Melanie Darigo. She is a community organizer, healthcare advocate, mother of three, and she joins us now. Melanie, thanks for being on the program. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm ecstatic to be here. So how do you break through when you got nine competitors for a congressional race just in the primary? 
Listen, you know, uh, I ran for this seat in 2020, right? So we we are used to being up against some really difficult odds, uh, you know, breaking through against an incumbent, fighting to get your name out there during a global pandemic. You know, that's nothing new to us. Uh, look, I think that the people of this district, they know me, they know my track record. You know, I've been in the trenches, I've been on the front lines, I've been on the protest line with them uh, and they've seen what I can do. So, you know, I think that that speaks volumes in terms of what we're trying to do here. Uh, you know, we see the state of this country and voters are craving Democrats who are going to stand up and fight for working families. You know, I'm the progressive in the race and I am the only candidate in the race that's doing that. Is it a very progressive district? This district just got a lot bluer with redistricting. You know, I think this is a district that has been democratic for over 20 years and now it's probably the bluest it's ever been. I think what we're seeing when we talk about progressives and in this particular district, this is a district that hasn't had a whole lot of community organizing. It hasn't had a whole lot of outreach. So when we knock on doors and we have conversations with voters about the issues that really matter, 9.9 times out of 10, a Democrat who thinks they're in the middle is really with the progressives. So yes, I believe this is a progressive district. And what are the top issues? Issues as you see them that you think you can sort of not only run on, but win on. Right, so I have been a healthcare advocate throughout my entire career. I've been fighting for universal healthcare via Medicare for all for years in this district. Even when I was the lone voice in the room fighting for it. Now we see of course Medicare for all polling at the top of polls. It polls at 70% in this particular district. Healthcare is something that is very important to constituents. The climate crisis, we are a coastal community and we are having to contend with devastating weather patterns. And listen, anti-corruption. You know, we are seeing this nearly every day in at every form of government, every level of government. Corruption is taking over and we need Democrats who are going to fight back, who are going to stand in our truth and push for the policies we need that uplift and help and protect working families. So I think that is really resonating with folks throughout the district. And historically, this district has not had a representative that pushes back against the lobbyists. I'm not taking any corporate money. I don't think policy should be for sale, you know, I'm beholden to my constituents and I think that really sets me apart from the pack. So if the pharmaceuticals came to you and said, you know, Melanie, we kind of like you and we like your candidacy, but you know, here's a boatload of money so that if you do get elected, go ahead and go for Medicare for all, but let us set our own prices for, for no, pharmaceuticals. That's a hard no, that's gonna be a hard no for me. I don't think representatives should run for office to take a lobbyist check. We shouldn't run for office to stay in office, we should run for office to serve our communities. And that's why I think you know we're gonna make history in this district. I'll be the first woman ever elected, certainly the first progressive, and we're gonna fight for people-centered policy. What are the policy proposals you've put forward is something called the Paid Buy Act. And it would essentially require political candidates to disclose the corporate special interest money they get. It would also, you've also added now judicial um, nominees to this. Um, I assume that's related to Clarence Thomas and some of the fears that people had of about conflicts of interest involving him and his wife. Well, I'll tell you, it's not just Clarence and Ginny Thomas that we're dealing with here. You know, the, there are the last three Supreme Court nominations, or excuse me, uh, you know, judges that that have been confirmed have come from the Federalist Society. There is a large dark money movement funding 
you know, an, an agenda for the ultra right corporate wing of this country. Uh, and how that manifests is a very, you know, anti union, anti environment, anti choice, uh, anti immigrant agenda. And we're starting to see it play out on the federal bench and certainly in the Supreme Court. Uh, so yes, you know, this is this we're dealing with some deep rooted corruption and we need to cut it out right at the root here. Would you support campaign finance reform? Never mind the paid, you know, the the paid by act that requires disclosures, but sort of take it even further to where Bernie Sanders and, and others have gone. And, and even, you know, there's some people, Pete Buttigieg, I think, has said in the last campaign that the fundamental thing that has to be done to fix democracy is to take some of the money out of politics and put some limits back in. Would you support that? One hundred percent. I mean, look, I am. I have been an ardent supporter of overturning Citizens United. We've been talking about the corruption on the campaign trail for years in this district. But you know what the Paid By Act would do, I believe, is a step to overturning Citizens United. Obviously, that's going to take a little bit more work. It's going to take a little bit more time. When I introduced the Paid By Back, excuse me, the Paid By Act last cycle, I invited candidates all across the country to endorse it, and many did. This year, I have invited the you know my my fellow opponents in the race to endorse it because I think it is critical for our survival as a country, as a democracy. So far, no one has taken me up on that. And I think that you know speaks volumes. The primary is June the 28th in a district that encompasses Westchester and Queens and the Bronx and Long Island. I mean, it's a sort of unusual looking district. Is it more important to sort of get out and do the, the, the door knocking or is it more important to sort of do the traditional media because you're talking about you know, the number one media market in the United States that which reaches all of these homes? You know, I think it's a mixture of both. But as a community organizer, I can tell you that nothing is more powerful than that one-on-one -on -one conversation at the door. We've been knocking in what amounts to about 80% of this district for over a year. And that's in addition to my run from 2020. We've been in the Bronx nearly every weekend. We've been up in Westchester a couple times a week. We spend a lot of time in Queens. We have built some deep-seated alliances. And I think races like this, crowded primaries, it's going to come down to your Field operation, uh, and, and thankfully, you know, we are the race that has the most volunteers. We have the most excited and energized, energized base. There's a passion for change. That's what we're bringing to this race, and I think ultimately, uh, that's what it's going to come down to. You know, I mentioned some endorsements earlier. We've been endorsed by Our Revolution. We have 19,000 members in the district, and of course, we know Our Rev is. Uh, really good at mobilizing and energizing their base, so and and their members. So we're very excited to you know get out and and hit the doors with them as well. It still must be challenging though. I mean, this is an expensive race, right? When you're talking about you know the New York area, and if you're not taking you know money, pack money, you're not taking you know uh, corporate money. You still have to raise a lot of money in smaller increments. Mm -hmm. um, do you find yourself having to spend a lot of time, perhaps more time than you'd like, essentially trying to get people to to give you money? Unfortunately, yes, and I don't see that changing until we fix campaign finance reform. As you know, it's such a broken system, and we're seeing it in this race. You know, there is a we have a bundler in the race, we have someone taking a ton of lobbyist money in the race, and everywhere in between. What I think this race is going to come down to is big money versus big organizing. And thankfully, you know, all the organizers are with our campaign in every every county, which you know, the five counties of this new district, and we're very fortunate 
and excited to have them. But yes, money is important. You still need to raise a certain threshold in order to pay your staff, in order to buy palm cards, you know, etc. Um, so of course we do um, accept, you know, donations from folks all over the country. Uh, but I am a grassroots candidate, and uh, you know, we've taken a hard line on not taking any corporate money or dark money because, listen. Our government has to mean something. This process that we're all fighting for, the democracy should mean something. Uh, and it doesn't when you're bought and paid for. There is something uh, that seems to come out of uh, particularly conservatives who when they hear about progressives, they think, oh my God, progressives are like anti-family or not family friendly. You're the mother of three. Mm -hmm. um, I wonder if you can sort of help explain to, I don't know some of the skeptics out there how it is that you're able to be a family person and also still be a progressive at the same time. Yeah, well, look, I think progressive policy is deeply rooted in human rights and civil rights. It's rooted in working families. You know, as a working parent myself, I'm fighting for the future for my children. You know, I have three kids, as you mentioned, they're 11, 7, and 5, and they have been at protests, they've been knocking doors, they've been at rallies, they've been at teachings and educational events since they were babies. And I feel quite proud as a mother that I'm raising these three little change makers who deeply understand policy, in fact, better than many adults do. And I think this is what creates a good community. This is what creates the society that we all want to live in, right? There have to be pillars and values that we all align to. And we can use the buzzwords, we can say progressive, we can say conservative. But what we've done really well in this campaign is just cut right to it and talk about the policy. Listen, it doesn't matter if you're a Republican or you're a Democrat or anywhere in between, you need health care. You want a good school for your kids. You want to have affordable housing. You have to address the climate crisis, right? So I think that when we talk about progressive policy, progressive policy creates a future for our children and grandchildren. And without it, I am afraid that you know we're going down a very scary road. Does that scary road though also include the misinformation? Because when you explain to people what Medicare for all would do, I mean, a, a, a major plank of yours, and you explain to them the details, even most Republicans, I think a majority of Republicans also support it. But there's something about the language that freaks people out about, oh my God, government control of our health care. This is going to be terrible. This is communism. This is socialism. How do you deal with that? Yeah, well, that's why I think it's really important to get out in the field and knock on doors and have those one on one conversations. You know, you meet folks where they're at, you don't judge them. You know, you have, you, you arm them with the facts and you listen to the misinformation and you correct them. And I think when you're able to do that, you know, folks do end up, you know, changing their minds. I mean, we have flipped Republicans at the door talking about policy. And that is something, you know, four years ago, I never would have thought possible, but it is absolutely happening. Because as I said, everybody needs health care. Hmm. Melanie DeRigo, she is a um, candidate for New York's third congressional district. She is the progressive in the race. She's not taking lobbying money, corporate money. The primary is June the 28th. Uh, Melanie, what's your website? How can people contact you if they want to help? Yes, the website is Dorigo2022.com. You can sign up to volunteer. If you'd like to make a donation, you could either go to the website or go to donate2melanie.com. Melanie, good luck and thanks for being on the program. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. And that'll do it for this conversation on behalf of Asher Colfield, Craig Lowry, Gina Kim, and the rest of the gang at the Young Turks. I'm David Schuster. Thanks for joining us.